Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning once again, Grantham Church, and those watching the live stream and those who are guests with us. We're so glad, again, that you chose to be here this morning. Uh, as I suspect, as I said before, with, with heavy hearts, but also coming expecting to hear a word from the Lord. Amen? Amen. This is Transfiguration Sunday on the church liturgical calendar, which we, will, we follow here and there uh, throughout the year. Uh, you probably saw a slide in the uh, sermon announcements as you came in for Ash Wednesday. That's this Wednesday, if you can believe it, the beginning of Lent. Uh, the time when we reflect on Jesus' Jesus uh, season in the wilderness, this time of temptation. And uh, so we hope that you'll join us for that series. But again, Transfiguration Sunday, and our message will look at the Transfiguration text in Luke chapter 9. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn there with me. Luke chapter 9, we'll begin reading with verse 28 and read through verse 36. Let's stand in the reading of the scripture together. Luke 9, verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's so wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Sweet God, you may be seated. From glory to glory, 
That is the sermon title for this morning. If you look in your bulletin, there's a, a summarized uh, description of the message. It says, The Transfiguration of Jesus is one of the most neglected gospel stories within Western Christianity. We are a part of what is called Western Christianity. Uh, for those of you who've been watching the news, you probably tuned in to how in Ukraine, Eastern Orthodoxy is the primary expression of Christianity there. In the West and the East, they think very differently about theology. Uh, while a surface reading of this story, the Transfiguration, might seem strange and confusing, we can't afford to miss its significance and the implications it has for Christ's identity, who Christ is and was and is, his supremacy over all things, and for our own spiritual growth. Listen to this quote from Dorothy Lee, professor of New Testament at Trinity College in Melbourne. She's an Anglican priest and author, and she writes this in her book on transfiguration. She says, Western Christianity in many places is struggling for survival against a deadly secularism that smothers any sense of transcendence or mystery, too much of which has penetrated its own ranks. The church needs to regain the vision of Christ on the mountain, the light in which we see light, the echo of the divine voice acclaiming Jesus, the beloved Son, the biblical symbolism of a majestic, incarnate, crucified God as the only source of hope for the transfiguring of a disfigured world. That's good. So hear this call from Dorothy Lee to embrace mystery as Western Christians, to embrace mystery, to embrace what we might call mysticism. And that's simply this idea that Jesus is alive and we can commune with him. And for example, prayer isn't just all about me talking to God, but an expectation that God can talk to me. Amen? So there's more than meets the eye than often we are told or presented with in Western Christianity. Jesus calls us to abide in Him. Not in information, not in doctrines, not in theology, as good as those things can be, but to know Him as a person. You see, even in a world that embraced mystery, as they did in the first century when the New Testament was written, the, the New Testament authors, they understood what they were saying when they talked like this and when they told stories like what we find in Luke chapter 9. Listen to what Peter writes in his second epistle about the disciples reporting of some pretty spectacular things that they witnessed, including this mountaintop experience in Luke chapter 9. Maybe you missed this in, in Peter's second epistle. He makes a reference to the transfiguration. He begins in verse 16 of chapter 1, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, if they were writing myth, if they were doing something like what the pagans would have done in their mythology, he wouldn't bother in stressing this point, right? That something literal happened here with Jesus and that something historical happened. He says in verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father 
when that, that voice that was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, Peter's referring to the voice of God heard in Jesus' baptism, but look then at verse 18. He said, we ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, Peter is referring to this event we call the Transfiguration, which is recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. So with your Bibles open to Luke 9, if you already have them open, just keep them open. I'm not going to go verse by verse just for the sake of time this morning, but you may want to glance down and, and see some of what I'm talking about as I summarize this passage and, and look at what's happening in our main scripture text this morning and look more closely at the context, the symbolism, and the meaning of the passage so they might hear the voice of God to us and respond in faith to the Spirit's promptings. If you're taking notes, you may, may want to jot some of this down as we summarize it. Let's look at the context symbolism and the multi-layered meaning. <clears throat> we need to look at this passage, which we, which we just read, in its literary unit. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 43. In fact, if we don't do that, that's why a good hermeneutics professor will tell you, read the passage before and read the passage after the text that you're looking at because you can gain a lot of insight into the context by doing that. And you need to do that with this episode. It only really makes sense in that way. First off, if you begin with verse 18 of Luke chapter 9, we see it begins with Jesus' question about his own identity. It sent the disciples out, they came back, and they report on all the good times that they had and how in the name of, of, of Christ and the kingdom that they were doing many of the things that he had been doing. And it was all very exciting, as one might imagine. And Jesus, more than all of that, is concerned about this question of identity. Well, that's great, guys, but tell me this, who do people say that I am? And they answer, some say that you're John the Baptist back from the dead, or you're like Elijah or one of the prophets of old returned on the scene and likely having something to do with this eschatological, that means end time sort of expectation that one of the prophets of old would come. Now later Jesus will refer to John the Baptist as sort of being an Elijah figure and him being sort of this new Moses as we'll even see in this text. But again, this is where it starts. This is the question that Jesus is concerned with. Who do people say that I am? And they throw out all of these answers and then Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And I can just imagine hearing a pin drop. It gets really quiet. Who's going to speak up? Well, Peter speaks up. And just as Peter speaks up in our text today and throws out some crazy idea about let's make three tents dedicated to all of you. We don't need three tabernacles. You're going to see in the text today, we, we only need one. That's Jesus, who is the walking temple himself. So it was a great idea, Peter, but sorry, you're wrong. But Peter did get it right earlier where he says, you are, in answer to Jesus' question, what does he say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, this isn't something that you managed to figure out yourself and, you know, you connected the dots or whatever. He said, the Spirit has been at work in you to reveal this to you. 
But we need to understand that what Peter thinks about Messiah is not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. If you keep reading after this Caesarea Philippi moment where Peter makes this confession, Jesus then begins to define what kind of Messiah he will be. He talks about being the son of man of Daniel. He says that this son of man though, this Messiah will suffer and will die. Now, this doesn't compute with them because that, that is uh, contradictory to the idea that they have of Messiah as a conquering king who will literally defeat the enemies of the Lord and establish his kingdom on the earth. And Jesus is a king. He told Pilate that. I'm just not a king that you know of, right? I have a kingdom not of this world. The disciples, they don't get this yet. They don't understand this. And they won't until Jesus is crucified and resurrected. So Jesus says, this Messiah whom you confess is going to suffer and die. And he says, but not just me. This isn't just my road. I'm calling you to take up your cross and follow me as well. We, so we need to see this in its context. They're still thinking sort of this earthly Messiah, worldly kingdom Messiah with an earthly identity. And God the Father is about to reveal Jesus, his son, by pulling up the, the mask or pulling back the curtain or lifting the veil to show them who Jesus really is in eternal, in an eternal sense. So then, again, Jesus begins with the question. He defines, redefines Messiah after Peter's confession, and God lifts the veil to reveal Jesus' true identity. And then Jesus, at the end of this passage, which we didn't read, if you kept reading uh, beyond the verses we read, comes down the mountain and discovers a faithless people. He even tells his disciples that, especially Mark's gospel. Mark is uh, really almost kind of ruthless when it comes to the disciples of showing how clueless and naive and stupid they are and not getting... Uh, what Jesus is, is laying down. And with that coming down the mountain and discovering a faithless people, who does that sound like? Does that remind you of another biblical story? Yes. Moses coming down the mountain and finding the people engaged in idolatry with the golden calf. So Jesus is doing something here and likening himself to Moses. Yet remember in this scene, Moses is there, and this is a vision. I wouldn't take this too literally. This is a vision where Moses appears with Elijah and Jesus as the end result is Jesus is greater than both those guys. And they're both talking about a new exodus, one in which Jesus will lead the people out in a spiritual sense. So let's look then at the Old Testament background and imagery and symbols because this text, which I won't have time to go into this morning, is jam-packed full of this. If you were a Jew in that day reading this, you would see so many allusions and multi-layered meaning within the text uh, to, to the Old Testament, Old Testament stories and experiences. So number one, we have a mountaintop experience. Moses went up on Sinai. He saw the burning bush there. He receives the Ten Commandments there. As I said, he comes down the mountain, off a mountain. Elijah, up on a mountain. Many prophets experience God up on mountaintops uh, in the Old Testament. And then we also have this cloud. Now, what did the cloud represent in the Old Testament Exodus story? The presence of God, which led the people of Israel by day. Cloud by day, fire by night, right? So a cloud of divinity. Paul talks about a cloud of divinity in 1 Thessalonians 4, which you shouldn't take literally. It's a mixing of metaphors here that we're going to be caught up in the air with Jesus in the clouds. It's simply we're going to be in and with the divine presence. So that should jump out at you in, the, in this passage as well. And then there are witnesses. You know, when Moses went up on the mountain, we often miss this, he took people with him. 
One time it was Aaron, one time it was Joshua. Moses takes witnesses to, to testify to the people. This wasn't just in his head. He wasn't just experiencing some sort of delusion. And the Old Testament actually tells us this, that there ought to be two or more to testify and witness to what has happened. This is what Jesus is talking about, Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered in my name, right? There I am. So Jesus takes his witnesses. Who are they? They're Peter, James, and John. This is Jesus' intimate space. Jesus had a small group. By the way, if you don't, you should get one because Jesus had one. Jesus had a small group, but he also had an intimate space. Peter, James, and John, he takes these guys, his closest disciples with him to be witnesses to this event. And so with Moses, we have a representative of the law, right, the Torah, and Elijah represents the prophets. This is one thing that's happening in this passage. The law and the prophets talking with Jesus, but yet Jesus whose face is transfigured in a way like Moses. If you go to Exodus 34, Moses, when he's coming down the mountain, what's happening with his face? Do you remember this? His face is what? It's glowing. It's radiating the glory in the presence of God. Some scholars say it seems that that glory was too much for people, so Moses puts a veil over his face, not to completely shock and send people into terror, but also some think that it's possible that the glory would begin to fade. And with the fading of glory, and this is, again, this is why they wanted a golden calf. This is why we still want our golden calves, because we're not okay with an unseen God. They want to see something. You want to see a burning bush. You, you, you need to see a glowing face, right? We want to see the God that we're worshiping. So some say there was a little concern here that as the, the glorious, radiant face of Moses began to fade, if they saw that, they would connect some spiritual theological dots and say maybe God has, is lessening his presence with them or something like that. So Moses covers his face. It's important to remember that because we're going to come back to that in a minute in 2 Corinthians. So Jesus in this scene is shown to be greater than the law and the prophets. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of what had occurred and been happening in the Old Testament. The one who is greater has come, which Moses himself testified to in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. You can see that reference there on the slide in front of you. That a prophet greater than Moses would come and what we're seeing in the transfiguration is this put on display. Jesus is it. Jesus is the one promised by God, foretold by the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament text. And that this Jesus is leading a new exodus from an unseen enemy like Pharaoh, but much worse, to free us, ransom us, and free us from the bondage of the evil one which he will do shortly in Luke's gospel on the cross of Calvary. And so here we see the glory of God revealed. You know, the Apostle Paul uses this Old Testament scene with Moses on Mount Sinai and the transfiguration of Christ in his attempts to explain why some don't believe in Jesus, how we're able then to first believe in Jesus, but also how we can continue to grow in our faith by gazing upon the glory of Christ. Because if you think about it, Moses' face was the moon. Jesus is the sun. 
Moses, like us, and Paul's gonna get to this in 2 Corinthians chapter three, we merely reflect the glory of God. The glory of, of God emanates from Jesus himself, amen? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter three. 2 Corinthians chapter three, verse seven through chapter four, verse six. Now, I'm not going to read all of this just for the sake of time. Here in a moment, we'll look at chapter three, verse 16 through 18. Let me just set the context here. Paul is explaining his theology, why he is doing what he's doing, why he's saying what he's saying, despite the Jewish opposition to his message. Paul's a Jew. He was a good Jew. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he, he was persecuting the church in the beginning, but you remember he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus changes his life, blinds him, but those who are blind, you may see, as the song says. Paul is able to see, changes his life, begins to preach and proclaim the gospel. That Jesus, like we see in the transfiguration, fulfills the Old Testament and is now greater than Moses. That was very offensive, but yet Paul preached it. And he explains why he is preaching it. He shares why he is so bold in proclaiming this message. And he says, like Moses' veil in Ezekiel 34 hides the glory of God, there is a veil that covers our eyes, not allowing us to see the glory of God until the veil is removed by the power of God. So with Christ and the new covenant, this veil is removed, and that veil which covers our own eyes is removed when we trust in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He said, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, Paul is speaking specifically about freedom from the law. Jesus has given us a higher law, right? We, we don't just obey because we're afraid of the consequences of disobeying the law. We've been given a spirit that changes our heart within. And so we want to obey simply out of the life of Jesus in us and because it's in keeping with human flourishing the way God has created us to be. And so verse 18, key verse. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect themselves the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the Spirit, that is the Spirit that was at work with Moses, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Uh, the King James Version says, from glory to glory we are changed, which first begins for the Jew, a glory from glory is from the old covenant to the new covenant, one of law to that of grace. And we continue to grow from glory to glory as we come to know Jesus as a person, this transfigured Christ who transforms a disfigured world. Hallelujah. Now think about this. What are some takeaways and implications for us in our spiritual growth on the passage that we've just looked at? Number one, and I'll move through these pretty quickly, so if you miss any of this and taking notes, we'll put it on the website tomorrow. Number one, Jesus is not simply a prophet. He's not simply a teacher or a miracle worker. Remember, C.S. Lewis said something like that. You, can, you can't you, you don't get off just simply saying that he's a good person. He claimed to be God, 
right? So he's, he's either God or he's on the level as a poached egg, C.S. Lewis said, you know. The people go around saying, I'm an orange, you know. There's a place for folks like that to get better. So Jesus is either who he says he is or he's not. Now, even the Jewish Talmud would recognize that Jesus was a miracle worker. They can't deny this. But we would say, no, Jesus is more than that, especially based on texts like Luke 9. We see this very clearly. If you thought Jesus was just a human being, God pulls back the curtain and says, no, look, I'm eternal. And I've come to save the day. Jesus is this promised Messiah, even though we needed that redefining. He is the Son of Man, and He is God in the flesh. Two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He established a new covenant on the cross and leads us, as we said, out of spiritual bondage. If we will follow Him, if we will stop looking back to Egypt and say, man, that was, wasn't that so great? At least there we knew we had a warm bed place to sleep. Jesus says you need to leave all of that to follow me. Number three, the Old Testament we see from this should be interpreted through a Jesus that is a cruciformed through the lens of the cross sort of lens and used to show that Christ as the fulfillment. You've, you've been following us here at Grantham. You've been coming the last several weeks. I've been doing this a little bit with some of the Old Testament passages that we've been looking at and we'll continue to do that this year as we dive into the Old Testament. Helping us to see how what occurred then points to Jesus in one way or another. And number four, did you see this in the beginning of the passage? The glory of God revealed in Jesus happened during prayer. We have no indication that Jesus went up on the mountain to do this. What we see is that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. What does that tell us? Well, it should say several things to us, but it says if you want to move from glory to glory, if you want to move to a deeper knowledge, and not just a head knowledge, but to get into this Eastern Orthodox idea of this mystical knowing Jesus and abiding Jesus in a person and move from glory to glory, then you must meet God in prayer. All of this occurs because Jesus had simply gone to the mountain with his closest buds to pray to God. And not just to talk to God, but to hear from God. It's in those moments, like Peter, James, and John, that we too may be surprised by God's presence if we will journey up the mountain and be willing to follow Jesus back down into the valley and maybe hear some tough things from time to time. And then number five, there is a greater knowing, this is what we're saying, a greater knowing of Jesus beyond facts, theology, and doctrines. Those things are good, but, but that's not where it stops, folks. We are called to move from glory to glory in our faith. You know, that's what the author of Hebrews had in mind, I think, when they wrote these words. Look at Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 3. And this is from the message uh, translation, a paraphrase. So come on, let's leave the preschool finger-painting exercises on Christ and grow up with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. The basic foundational truths that are in place where we learned, we learned turning how to turn your back on salvation by self-help. 
turning in trust toward God and baptismal instructions and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we could just name a lot of those basic things of the Christian faith. God helping us will stay true to all of that, but there's so much more, so much more. And it's not found in a book, folks. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. That's what the book is for. And hopefully any other books that we read here at Grantham, that they would point us to a living experience of Jesus, that we might know his presence, whoever we are, wherever we are. Isn't this what makes all the difference? I cannot get the image of those Ukrainian Christians singing in an open square or or praying in an open square and singing in the, in the subway about their hope and their faith in Jesus. Folks, that kind of faith is not about myth. It's not about a book even. It's about knowing a person. The person who came the first time to testify to the good news and the coming of the kingdom and that yet we live in the overlap between this age and the age to come, Jesus promises that one day he will return. He will remove every tear from our eye. He will finally turn our swords into farming tools, and he will bring the kingdom in its fullness. And our call today is to be living, walking signposts that testify to the hope in this God. And that the way that we do that, we do that in a Jesus sort of way because we're leading people to a Jesus sort of God. That we can simultaneously grieve, lament what we're seeing with the Ukrainian nation, but also for Russia and its leader because he is a human made in God's image too. This is the third way. This is the gospel that Jesus calls us to, amen? But ultimately, and here's what I'm saying, you can't get there. You can't know the power of that truth until you experience the power of the risen Jesus. And that's what I invite us to do today. Here's some questions to help us as we reflect and respond to what we've heard. I'll give us a moment to process some of this together. I know it's a lot. Number one, the father said there on the mountain, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. How might you need to listen to what Jesus says over other competing or contrary voices in your life. And we might also add in there the other competing narratives, right? Because we can, we can predict when this stuff happens, what this news organization's gonna say and what this news organization's gonna say and who's to blame. But again, to be third way, let's ask this question critically and self-reflect for ourselves and listen to the voice of Jesus. What might Jesus be saying and how can we prioritize his voice 
over other voices? How, do you, how is the Spirit speaking to you about this? Number two, instead of simply gaining more head knowledge, how might the Spirit be inviting you to know the living Jesus more deeply in a relational way? Has the Lord been speaking to you about a quiet time or practicing Lectio Divina or other spiritual disciplines? What might the Lord be asking you to do to know him not as a doctrine, not as words on a page, but the living word made flesh who we can know in prayer? And then lastly, number three, what next steps might you need to take to move from glory to glory? Maybe it's time for some new experiences. You've told those old stories long enough. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, God did this in me in our church. Let's make some new ones. Let's experience God afresh so that we might testify to the ongoing experience of the living Jesus in our midst. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that you are here with us. In fact, we've sensed your presence with us through all that we've done here this morning, through singing, through prayer, through scripture reading, and now in the message. Lord, we have a lot of emotions this morning and a lot of things on our mind worries about today, fears about tomorrow. Jesus, would you stand in our midst? Would you come into our boat? Would you yell at the storm to be quiet so that we might know that we are in the presence of divinity? of love and of the Prince of Peace. Speak to our hearts now, Lord, for your servants are listening. And all of God's people said.